You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis, a faith community that welcomes, affirms, and protects the light in each human heart, listens deeply to where love is calling us next, and with humility, courage, and compassion, works to create a more just world. To learn more, visit us at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning, First Universalist. Aw, please rise in body or spirit and join me in singing the opening hymn, which is number 21 in the gray hymnal, For the Beauty of the Earth. a difference a little bit of sunlight makes, right? It's an amazing, amazing thing. So, dear ones, good morning. As you are getting settled in, I want to wish an Eid Mubarak to our Muslim siblings in faith. We are so glad that you are choosing to journey amongst us this day. Welcome to First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. I'm restraining myself from making the balcony joke. Well, someone said, what's the balcony joke? So I need to make sure to note the folks up in the balcony with us this morning. You down here on the main level of the sanctuary, you all are, are pretty cool. But the folks in the balcony, they're on a whole nother level. <laughs> you put just a little bit of sunlight in me. I have no idea what happens. Congregation, welcome. Welcome to First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. This is flight number 1100 with continuing service to the wonder and the mystery of the earth. As you find your seats in this sanctuary, I want to remind us all that this is our Earth Day celebration. Here in this cabin on Spaceship Earth, traveling through the vastness of space, I want to let you all know that our cruising speed today will be 67,000 miles per hour. 18.5 miles per second. That is our orbital velocity around the sun 
which thankfully is making an appearance after that long, long week. Please return your tray tables to their upright and locked position. Please silence your uh, gadgets of distraction. They really do interfere with spiritual navigation. <laughs> From time to time, you may find that your mind has drifted. If and when that happens, I invite you to allow your gaze to settle on the willow art behind me, sculpture from member Martha Bird. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. And please be sure to join this morning's flight crew, members of the EJ team, Kathy and Alex and Bob and Stan and Susan, who will be happy to help connect you. They and other members of the environmental justice team will be happy to connect you with your next destination on this journey of environmental stewardship down in the social hall after the service. Dear ones, as the world around us scrambles, panicking over where we've wound up and where we've yet to arrive, we are choosing this moment to calm down, to unify, to organize around the call of love. We are giving isolation a break and resting for a while in the warmth of common purpose. We are putting down our hidden weapons. We are picking up the courage to tell the truth to each other and look each other in the eye and love an infectious, unexempting love. We are getting serious about joy and laughter and singing and kindness and unity because within them lies more power to change the world for good than division could ever hold. We mean to mean something to this day which has come to mean life for us. Welcome to First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. If you have come expecting perfection, I encourage you to change your mind. <laughs> but if you have come to find a place with the people who want to build a community where no one is too young, too old, too queer, too hetero, too black, too brown to matter, too white to get woke, too wealthy, too poor, too disabled to lead our common journey, too ineloquent to have a voice, too timid to make a difference that shakes the status quo, then you have found just the place. Love is alive here. Love is growing in our hearts and our hands, and love is excited to make room for every single one of us here and beyond. Come, let us celebrate. Let us choose the truth and joy. Let us comfort and keep each other for a while. And may the power of what we realize in this hour come to heal us and move with us into the wider world. Put all our pettiness to sleep and awaken the fullness of our compassion instead. This is what we invite you into, and I invite you as we settle in here together to put down what you might be holding, literally or metaphorically, to take three breaths. Breathing in and out at your own pace, this shared breath that makes us one. We acknowledge that we live on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. These indigenous tribes have lived on and cared for this land for thousands of years, and we do this to show respect for this care. But this is only a beginning. Here, we recognize the ongoing impacts of colonization that tribal communities continue to live with to this day. Today, we offer our support for indigenous rights, as defined in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. 
to protect our environment for their culture, health, and traditions. We respect tribal sovereignty, including protecting wild rice growing in sacred waters. We will begin to learn the true history of this land and its caretakers to grow an awareness of the issues impacting indigenous communities and to become allies for them. In this way, we protect the earth for all peoples. Wopalatanka, thank you. Welcome everyone. We're going to do a uh, responsive reading in the gray hymnal. So if you'd grab your gray hymnal and go to the back end of that, number 530, called Out of the Stars. And it is in a section of the readings called Transcending Mystery and Wonder, the Celebration of Life. Number 530, Out of the Stars. Out of the stars in their flight, out of the dust of eternity, here have we come, stardust and sunlight mingling through time and through space. Time out of time before time in the vastness of space, earth spun to orbit the sun. Earth with the thunder of mountains newborn, the boiling of seas. Mystery hidden in mystery, back through all time. Mystery rising from rocks in the storm and the sea. Ponder this thing in your heart. Ponder with awe. Out of the sea to the land, out of the shallows came ferns. Ponder this thing in your heart. Life up from sea. Eyes to behold. Throats to sing, mates to love. This is the wonder of time. This is the marvel of space. Out of the stars swung the earth. Life upon earth rose to love. Blessings. Will you join me in the words for lighting our chalice? Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. At the heart of my story is love, my love for all of life on our earth. Evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould said it beautifully. We will not fight to save what we do not love. We will not fight to save what we do not love. I have rarely seen scientists write about love, yet I have seen many examples of love being at the core of what motivates us humans to make changes in our lives, including choices to actively care for our environment, prevent further climate change, and protect the myriad of amazing animals, plants, fungi, microorganisms, and all other forms of life on our beautiful Earth. So, what is something in nature that you love. I'm going to start with turtles. What about you? 
Huh. Keep going. Oh, this is great. We could keep going for a while. Well, just remember what you're thinking about and what you're feeling. And um, that is all about love. Um, I considered wearing my squirrel sweatshirt this morning, but I didn't. Um, Gould's quote about love takes me back to the late 1960s when I began college at the University of Colorado Boulder, a story that has helped me connect with the serious impacts of climate change. I went to Colorado because I wanted to explore the mountains, and I loved my times exploring them at many different altitudes. And yes, I went to my classes too. It was an amazing place to study environmental biology. One day, I was hiking above Timberline near the mountaintops. There were no trees there. It was too high for trees to grow. And I noticed the incredible variety of tiny plants that grew there. As I was walking along, I heard a little sound. Meep. Can you all make that sound with me? Meep. Meep. I spelled it M-E-E-P, but you know, the animal didn't know how to spell it, and that was fine. Um, I looked and I saw a small animal scurrying around the rocks, making these sweet sounds as if to say, hello. I later figured out that this animal was a pika, a relative of the rabbit. They live in the high altitudes of the Rocky Mountains. The pikas were well adapted to these altitudes, eating a variety of the small tundra plants, finding shelter in winter under the snow fields, and thriving in the cool mountaintop temperatures. Whenever I hiked on these mountaintops, I looked forward to seeing the pikas. It felt like I was visiting my friends. And even after I completed my education there and moved back to Minnesota, I returned to Colorado numerous times through the years and visited the mountaintops. My most recent visit was last October, after many years. So what has changed? I did not see any pikas on the mountaintops where I hiked. This doesn't mean that there are no pikas at all, but definitely not as many as there were. What is happening? Climate change and its impacts. How are the mountaintops warming? Typically, as you go higher and higher in the mountains, the air temperature gets cooler and cooler. With the climate changing, however, the temperatures continue to become warmer. So, the mountaintop temperatures are often warmer than they were and are continuing to change. But the pikas, can, the pikas cannot go any higher to find cooler temperatures. They are essentially trapped on the mountaintops by increasing temperatures caused by humans and their tolerance for higher temperatures is limited. Another issue is the melting of snow fields, which pikas rely on in the winter. They burrow into the snow, seeking insulation from the cold. With reduced snow on the mountaintops now, they do not have the protection that they need. The pikas cannot say to themselves, hmm, I'm getting too hot up here in the summer and too cold in the winter. And even the plants I eat that grow here are changing. I'll have to do something about this. No, they are the victims of our choices, and it breaks my heart. It has been recommended that the pika become federally classified as an endangered species but it has not yet been done. What to do? I often feel very sad at first when I ask this question, which can actually be an important part of taking action. Sadness is okay. Sadness is important. I do many different actions in my own life to reduce my greenhouse gas emissions 
and I support others in making these important changes. Whatever age we are, there are actions we can and must take. And these actions are doable. For example, and they can be small actions, cumulatively that's what matters. For example, finding ways to drive less, or maybe not at all. Turning down the heat at home, and sometimes wearing warmer clothes. Eating more vegetables, especially those that are locally grown. And so much more. We will not fight to save what we do not love. For me, the first step is love. Love for all of life, including the pikas. Please, please rise and body your spirit and join me in singing number 298 in the gray hymnal, Wake Now My Senses. So as we move into this time of prayer and this time of meditation, I invite you to put down what you're holding, to settle into the pew, to settle into whatever it is that you may be sitting on or reclining on, joining us online. If you are listening to this some days in the future as you walk around a lake, a neighborhood, while doing dishes in your kitchen, I invite you to settle in to what you're noticing in your body. Invite presence. What does it mean to gather for worship on Earth Day? As we move more deeply into this time of prayer and meditation, I invite you to reflect on this. Theologian Sally McFaig asks us to wonder, if God is that which is greater than us, powerful beyond our understanding, 
If God is that which we are wholly reliant on and cannot live without, is not the earth, is not nature something worthy of viewing as God? She goes further. What if nature is God and the earth is its body? How might we live or act differently if this were true in our bones, not just a thought experiment for these few minutes? We are created from the body of God. Every moment of our lives we live inside and on and in relationship with God's body. Born of it, nourished by it, clothed by its fruits, everything we touch made from God's body. When we die, we return to God's body, eventually taking a new and different place in the cycle that sustained our human lives. What if we knew this was true in our bones, not just in our intellect? Would we be able to burn the land and boil the seas? Would we smog the skies and mine the mountains? If we embodied this faith, how might we live or act differently? What does this God need of us? Where do we hear its voice of comfort? Where do we experience the embracing presence of love? In the eagle on the tree? In the power of the ocean? In the cool touch of the breeze and the smell of rain? If we knew this to be true in our bones, where might we hear the call to worship, the call to communion, the call to service? Let us rest in these questions for a few moments together. gathered here in this place, hearts open and opening, I invite you to speak aloud the names of those you would like to lift up in the care of this community this morning, to type them in the chat or to hold them in the silence of your heart. The water protectors. To those you are naming, and as our prayers continue to ripple out, as we hold in our care all those named aloud, those shared in the chat, those held in the sanctuary of our hearts. We pray that the grip of addiction be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened, that truth be told, that joy break through, and that love make every suffering bearable for us all. May it be so, and amen.
most weeks, the majority of the Sunday offering goes out the door to support organizations that we partner with to help amplify our commitments to justice in the many forms that justice making takes. This Sunday's offering goes to support the work of Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, which works as a community partner to First Universalist Church in building transformative power, bringing our people's unique gifts to addressing the climate crisis. MNIPL is also growing the lights of the climate movement in Minnesota, helping individuals and communities across the state to take action that is authentic, effective, and energizing. Join us in supporting MNIPL in building a powerful social movement for climate and environmental justice. Please give as generously as you're able. Rejoice, rejoice, and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. There's a well-known quote that floats through the environmental community by Gus Beth, who is a top U.S. advisor to climate and an author. It goes like this. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, climate change. We know we're living through it. In fact, right now, as our beloved bird, state bird, the loons, are flying back to their Minnesota lakes, it's 20 degrees colder than it usually is. Their wings are developing ice and they're falling out of the sky. This is climate chaos. We're not the only ones feeling it. Selfishness, greed, and apathy. Perhaps a few are actually driven by those, but I have come to believe those are just symptoms as well. So what is it then? How did we get to this point? The climate movement has begun to talk about capitalism and how it drives individuals to, and organizations to make poor decisions on many levels. Humans in general, after all, are just trying to get by in the rules that have been set up for us. But we know this, don't we? And knowing it is not enough. As I look around the room, I don't believe that any of you are so greedy or selfish or even so apathetic that we are letting our living earth die. So what is it then? Why is our home, our very life support system, in such peril? How have we known about this problem for more than 40 years and not pointed every little bit of our human ingenuity toward it en masse? And worse, why have we collectively turned away? Why did I continue to turn away? These are questions I wanted to answer, no, I needed to answer. And I ended up finding my answer when I finally stopped avoiding my own heartbreak. It took me 20 years. I want to tell you the story of my 20-year journey. This is a story about how I became hot for climate. 
Like children innately do, I have cared deeply about the natural world for as long as I can remember. I went around hugging trees, I still do. Animals fascinated me, I loved hiking in the woods. When it came time to choose a place to earn my high school volunteer hours, I was doing it for a tree planting nonprofit. I've always cared, that was always in me. Caring was not the problem, nor was it enough. Sometimes my caring even hurt. Looking back now, there were several inflection points when I would try to get involved in doing something about the environment. It always felt elusive, against the grain. I couldn't figure out how to do it in my real life. Yes, I volunteered for a tree planting organization in high school, but then it was off to college and writing term papers. Fast forward a few years after college, I tried again. There was a day of action at the Capitol ahead of Earth Day. It was one of my first times getting involved in a march, and I was enthusiastically spreading the word to all my friends and family. I emailed, if like me, you are overwhelmed about the environmental problems we are facing, this is something concrete we can do. And then, as if to try to tell people why they should care, as if they already didn't, I added, as Minnesotans, we value our wild species, especially our lakes, let's help protect them. This was my truth on the outside. There was another truth equally on the inside. I had fallen into a major depression. It was one of those times where I was especially attuned to the news and I was seeking out information actively on the environment. I wrote to a friend about a thought that suddenly dawned on me for the very first time. What if we've passed the point of no return? What if we don't have any time left to change? What if we've already put so much greenhouse gases into the air and cut down so many of our forests that there's nothing we can do? For the first time, it dawned on me. Are we just doomed to watch the slow and steady destruction of all we hold dear? Is that what life is going to be for the rest of our years? That's when I got really scared. Perhaps you felt this way too. Perhaps you are feeling this way right now. This was in 2007 for me, that first time I had that thought. It was 16 years ago. What I did not understand then, but now looking back I can clearly know, I was not having an ecological crisis, although there was an ecological crisis going on. I was having a crisis of faith. I was trying to figure out how I could go on in the face of such destruction and uncertainty. To answer how I could keep waking up in the morning, knowing the pain and horror being suffered. To figure out how to get out of bed, feeling so helpless and so hopeless. And who could I turn to? It seemed that every time I tried to talk to someone, they would say things like, that's just the way it is. I felt alone and I didn't know how to connect. The rally at the Capitol was a one-day event. What was I supposed to do after that? I was haunted by questions of whether it was too late anyway. So guess what I did? I went back to real life. At that time, I had just moved back from Washington, D.C. to the Twin Cities. I needed a job. I needed to move out of my parents' house. I busied myself first applying for jobs and then interviewing, and then I got a job and I had to learn a whole new company and a whole new job. Slowly, my consciousness turned away from this fear that I had and turned away from my spiritual crisis. It receded out of distraction and necessity but it didn't leave me. It just buried itself deeper inside. Forward another decade and another inflection point. After being at that company for almost a decade, in many jobs that had taught me so much, that helped me build my skills, that gave me a chance to work with smart and creative people that I admired and even loved, I had to leave. 
Eventually, it became too painful to know that our unintended consequences of our work were to convert more of the world's fresh water into high fructose corn syrup and forests into soybeans and cattle. Eventually, I could no longer justify it, even if it gave me a stable income and great benefits. And I got out. Such is the privilege of being auntie, but not a mother. I left without a plan, but I left with a North Star. This time, I was more determined than ever to crack the code I'd been trying, trying since childhood. I was going to spend my time working for the world that I wanted to see. I also took a very different approach this time. I didn't look for more information about climate change. I started to look for the people. What were they doing? How were they managing through this? I realized I too had to look at how I was managing through this crisis. So instead of pushing away my heartbreak at this time, I let it be there. It was hard. I kept a heartbreak journal to help me process and release. I sought sources on climate psychology. They gifted me names of what I was feeling. Solastalgia, ecological grief, and climate silence. And I understood that so many people also feel those. I'm not the only one. I'm not crazy. I'm just having a normal response in the face of this absolute horror show. Around this time, something else happened. I was listening to an interview by climate advocate Bill McKibben when someone inevitably asked the question, what can I do as an individual? His answer changed everything for me. You can't do much as an individual. Join together with others. Of course. With this, I became a climate Goldilocks. Testing groups, finding some were too hot or too cold, but some were just right for me. In these groups, I didn't have to know exactly what actions I should take. I just had to say yes to the next right thing. I built relationships and found belonging. Here are a few of the things that I tried. I got on a bus to the People's Climate March in Washington, D.C. Suddenly, I wasn't just one, but one of millions, as we chanted, we are unstoppable, another world is possible. I joined a group with Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, where our collection baskets went today. We went on a three-day pilgrimage to the White Earth and Leech Lake tribal nations. There, we heard from tribal elders who've been in this resistance for a very long time. We walked the black snake, what they call the oil pipeline. We sang together and cried around the campfire together at night. I also learned how to lobby my elected officials. It was actually more fun than I thought it would be. <laughs> I began to create relationships with them, learned they did want to listen, and that they actually need us to help them do their jobs. I marched to the Public Utilities Commission to give public comments. I joined with a friend to create and kickstart a climate solutions board game. In it, we poured our climate and game design talents into a tool to help others discover little-known solutions that had made me so excited. I also started to put my racial justice values into action answering a call to protect the Anishinaabe elders as they held ceremony at the Mississippi headwaters. They were protecting their culture and way of life, while just a few miles away, bulldozers threatened all of our waters with another new oil pipeline. It got built, but that doesn't make it any less meaningful that we tried together. And of course, I joined our first Universalist environmental justice team Doing this work in a community in which I already belonged had its own special significance for me. I am so proud of the work that we have done in this community. I'd like to invite all the EJT members to stand right now as I list off a few of the things that we have done. Together, we made the building more efficient and put solar panels on the roof. 
We hosted book groups and movie nights illustrating the intersection between climate and racial justice. We cultivated relationships with Dakota people, especially the LaPointe family, to support them in their convening of community conversations about water and water summits. We brought in experts to help people decarbonize their money. We healed our pieces of the earth through planting beautiful native landscapes just right outside this building. We cooked plant-based meals for church events, like the monthly community dinners. We did this, and we are doing this, and much more. And I want to thank you. When I first started this journey, I thought I was trying to answer the question, what is the one best thing I can do? The one thing that will make the most difference? I now realize that isn't the right question to ask at all. There's no right answer to that question. Worse, searching for perfection only leads to delay and inaction. There's nothing I myself can do to put a dent in this massive global problem. I can't trace my individual efforts to one less flood in Bangladesh. That's the wrong way to look at it, and I've been able to free myself of that burden now. My motto is, I can't, but we can. Yeah, I can't, but we can. I now believe in throwing rocks and pond ripples, in butterflies flapping their wings and affecting places thousands of miles away. I believe in humanity's ability to cooperate, even to change. I believe in the strength of community, and I believe in miracles. And here's where I'm at today on that question that haunted me 16 years ago. I've learned that it is too late, and it is never too late. That's a dichotomy that's really hard to hold, as most truths are. I still feel lonely in the climate crisis. One of the places I feel lonely is here at our church. Each time I stand at the table in the social hall eager to connect with others about environmental justice and people walk by, I feel lonely. Or when we behind the table squander the precious opportunity to connect in favor of climate splaining at people, I feel lonely. When I try to have a conversation about climate, the climate crisis and we hide behind the facts in the latest newspaper article or book that we read. When I hear, and the earth, tacked on in a sermon as just one more thing in the list, I feel a profound loneliness. What I want more than anything is for us to incorporate climate justice into the very fiber of our community and to support one another in this spiritual crisis. The trouble is, none of us know how to do this climate thing. Humans have never faced a world where we've collectively brought so much physical death and destruction at a global scale. We didn't intend for this to happen. We were just trying to get to place to place. We were just trying to keep our lights on, to keep our children fed. We've never faced problems like this, where we've been so collectively culpable, yet felt so individually impotent. But the thing is that in the Unitarian Universalist tradition, we don't shy away because we don't know how to do it, at least not in theory. And I think that is why I feel so lonely, because I expect so much of us. I need to be held and ministered to while the world is falling apart. I need to offer my ministry. And I need this to happen beyond just one time per year. It is wonderful to be here today. It is filling my heart and soul. And yet, I fear the environment will be stuffed back into a box, just like the earth globe that's currently blown up down in the social hall, only to be brought out again this time next year. I feel time slipping away.
Let us start today to shift our relationship to one another around the climate crisis. For the sake of our youth, for the sake of all those who will come after, and also for our own sake, for we are living through the climate crisis and we are sick of feeling guilty and grief-filled and help hopeless and helpless. Let us start today to build the spiritual tools necessary to help ourselves stay afloat. The tools without which we have no chance of stopping either the climate crisis itself or our spiritual crisis that is coming with it. I'd like to share some of the tools I hold most dear. These are the ones most useful to me that help keep me nourished and buoyed. First, I forgive myself, I forgive you, and I forgive humanity. Each time my shame, anger, or blame comes up, I forgive. Sometimes this is multiple times a day, whatever it takes. Second, I let my heart break flow through me. It's there even if I'm trying to push it away. When I let it flow, I find I'm not denying myself or my experience, and it doesn't get stuck inside. Third, I do not deny joy. I insist on joy, mine and yours. I let us deserve it despite everything that's happening. I allow, my, I allow myself to know there's beauty in the world, and I seek it out even if there's also horror. Fourth, I insist the world does not have to be this way, and I decide there is some contribution that I can make. I've given up on trying to save the world on one hand, and I also know that the oft-repeated, there's nothing I can do, is equally a lie. You see, it turned out that knowing I can make a difference didn't come about because I was clear on what that thing was ahead of time. Faith came first, action followed. Here's what I'm asking of you, of all of us. Let's start this today, down in the social hall, on the drive home. Connect around the environment, but don't let yourself rest on sharing the latest facts you read. No fact will save us. We've had 40 years of facts. Our temperature is still rising. It's time to try something new. It's time to find out how you are hot for climate. Talk about what you hope. Talk about what you don't dare let yourself hope. Talk about what's breaking your heart and what you need. Talk about what you dream. Talk about where you're stuck and where you need support. About the connections you're longing for. Ask all of those things in return. The ecological crisis is not one of greed or apathy. It is one of avoidance of pain. Forgive yourself. Forgive one another. Let heartbreak and joy flow. Have conviction and cultivate your faith in the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Then let us set ourselves together to the joy of making that happen. Thank you. Let us sing together in the Teal Hymnal 1052, The Oneness of Everything.
May we be both the seed and the soil, both planting and harvesting the work of our age. Thanks for listening. If you've been comforted or inspired by this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Podcasts are free to download, but they cost money to make. Visit firstuniversalistchurch.org slash donate to make your gift. We'd love for you to join us in person or online on Sunday mornings. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Thank you.